Support for this program comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, which helps people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. It's a great time for canals. We've been celebrating the bicentennial period of the Erie Canal, and last year marked the 100th anniversary of the Barge Canal. Now, with all that excitement, the Pomeroy Foundation has launched a new nationwide signage program to commemorate the history of transportation canals. Markers will be placed at existing or former canal sites all the way across the United States. To apply for a canal marker at no cost to you, or to learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org. We're standing on top of the 200-foot New Croton Dam holding back the water that saved New York City. The city had been plagued by fires, by disease, because uh, there was very little natural water on the island of Manhattan. Coming up on this episode of A New York Minute in History, the fascinating story behind the New York City water supply. Welcome to A New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Don Wildman, a curious New Yorker. The basis of this podcast is the New York State Museum in the state's capital of Albany. Established in 1836, it is the country's oldest and largest state museum. Within its walls, there are roughly one million cultural objects and more than 16 million scientific specimens all which helped tell the remarkable story of New York and its citizens. It's clear, it's crisp, it's clean, and you know what? It's pretty delicious. In fact, bakers and pizza makers have it shipped to their restaurants as far away as California, and it all comes from a New York City faucet. Well, actually, it's delivered from miles away every day through the most incredible water system ever built by mankind, right here in New York. It's Adam Bosch, I'm Director of Public Affairs for New York City's Water Supply. The reservoir system stores a total of 570 billion gallons at full volume. Uh, that water is collected from a watershed area that accounts for 1.2 million acres of land. That's about 200,000 acres for the Croton system and about a million acres up in the Catskills. Um, as I mentioned, 90% of the water is unfiltered. That's amazing. But here's what I don't get. Manhattan is an island surrounded by water. Why do they ever have to go anywhere else to find more? The main reason is that so much of the water that was available in the late 18th and early 19th century wasn't potable, and what was soon became fouled by the growing city. You have to realize that during that era, people weren't exactly aware of how their daily activities might be poisoning their drinking water. Remember, Don, this is a time when people drank more liquor than water because the water could kill you. It's so astonishing that back in the day, booze was actually healthier than water. It's hard for us to imagine now, but the world was a very different place circa the 17 and 1800s. My name is David Saul. I teach history and environmental studies at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Things started to become a bit more challenging as we move into the 1700s, and there was a sort of a mini reservoir within the city that was created 
called The Collect, um, which served pretty broad population, but um, over time became fairly polluted. And so one of the interesting aspects in the colonial era and then a little bit after that was the divide between where people got their water based on their wealth. So you had wealthier New Yorkers who were able to get um, deliveries of better water supplies from uh, often farther north in Manhattan Island, places that had uh, lower population densities that hadn't uh, that had uh, pure water sources versus the average person who had to rely on more polluted sources like the collect. And so you started to see some concerns about access to water, particularly based on wealth. I recently spoke with Professor Saul about his book, Empire of Water, an environmental and political history of the New York City water supply, published by Cornell University Press. We talked about just how dirty the water supply was at the time and why the most obvious choice for fresh water nearby wasn't an option. Exactly, the Hudson River. I mean, why wasn't the Hudson a viable option or even the East River? Like I said, New York City is an island. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting ironies of the New York City water supply is that you have these two rivers, and the East River is somewhat more of a tidal strait, but the Hudson is obviously a very large river and would seem to be an ideal water source. The problem is that in New York City and really up to 50 or 60 miles upstream from New York City, the Hudson is simply too salty to use as a water source, that um, the salt from the ocean really penetrates pretty far upstream so you do have cities later on, such as Poughkeepsie and Albany, that are drawing on the Hudson, but they're, again, quite a ways upstream from New York City. So I often think about it as the sort of rhyme of the ancient mariner, water, water, not a drop to drink, because New York has this great apparent water source in the Hudson, but it's not something that can be used until the salt content dips below a certain level, which is far outside the city and therefore wasn't an option in the colonial era or really into the 19th century. Okay, the river's brackish. I get that. But what about groundwater? Nothing there either? That's another interesting thing. Maybe in the era of the Dutch colony of New Netherland, there would have been enough freshwater sources in New Amsterdam to support that relatively small population. But as New Netherland became New York and the city grows, the supply wasn't enough. And again, Don, things were different back then. There were all different types of pollution from tanning operations and sort of what we might think of as proto-industrial uh, type operations to animals running around the streets. So we have to remember this wasn't a situation where Agriculture was in some distant place and food was brought in. A lot of the food was being raised within the confines of the city. So you had a lot of pigs and cows and other kinds of animals. And then, of course, you didn't have uh, the sewer system that we would enjoy today. And so you had human waste that was a problem. So really you had forms of industrial, with a small I, waste. Um, from manufacturing activities. You had human waste, you had animal waste, you didn't have a, f uh, a formal trash collection system, you didn't have sewers. 
So all of those things are going to generate pollutants that in many cases ended up in the streams that people were drawing on. And so, again, New York is not unique in this respect, but when you have a dense population in an urban area, often what people want to do, especially in an era before there's advanced water treatment, is to find a source that's outside the city that's seen as pure and unpolluted compared to the kind of degradation of sources that happened within the city. Okay, I think I'm beginning to see why New York City needed outside water and a better system for delivering it. They were growing, expanding. Their fresh water was polluted or too salty. They needed clean water and lots of it. Right, and we can't forget the ever-present threat of fire that existed at the time. In fact, New York City was ravaged by a fire in 1835 before the original Croton system was completed. That fire and the lack of water to fight it led to increasingly loud calls from the residents to finish the new water system. Okay, but let's back up. We're talking about Croton on Hudson. I I know this area very well. There's this huge reservoir and dam which you drive right by. But why here? Why Croton? What was there at the time, back in the early 19th century? Well, the construction began in the 1830s. Croton was chosen for a variety of reasons. At 35 to 40 miles away, it was still relatively close to New York City, had an abundant amount of fresh water, wasn't very developed at the time as far as human population goes, and was high enough. High enough? What's that got to do with it? It's all about something called the hydraulic grade line. Essentially what that means is where the water starts has to be higher than where the water ends up. Um, and water will follow that hydraulic grade line in a, in a closed system, um, and it will come out the other end with a certain degree of pressure, naturally built up gravitational pressure based on how high it started and how low it's ending up. So, you know, one of the things that we talk about quite often uh, when we're telling the public about their water supply is that New York City's water supply, uh, by gravity alone, can push the water up into the fourth, fifth, or sixth story in about every building in the city um, because the reservoirs start uh, at a height of about 200 feet. Um, that's where the distribution reservoir is. Um, and, the, and the city is more or less at sea level. And in a closed system, the water wants to get back to the height where it's starting again. And so it builds up that pressure. It's called head pressure. And that's essentially how the aqueduct works, is they had to make sure the water was ending up somewhere lower than where it started. They had to make sure that the end of the system was a closed system, that it wasn't open to the air, although the aqueduct was open to the air. Uh, and that was just so that the water uh, would flow and you wouldn't get um, air pockets and aqueducts and valve chambers, which can be quite damaging. How amazingly simple, yet brilliant. So that's how the whole thing works. Okay, so Croton is relatively close to New York City. It's rural, undeveloped at the time, and it's high enough for, what was it you called it again, the hydraulic grade line? Right, the hydraulic grade line. But it wasn't like no one owned this land. I mean, how does New York City just march in, build a dam, and start shipping the water back to the city? Weren't there people living there? Well, the land was certainly owned, mostly by farmers. But in the early 1800s, New York City was granted the power to condemn land by the state legislature. So the city could and did take people's land in exchange for what was supposed to be fair market value. That doesn't sound like it went over well. This question of land acquisition was, in some ways, the trickiest and 
I think, thorniest problem related to developing the water system. So on the one hand, there are the technical problems of how do we construct these systems across different landscapes and topographies and soil types and those kinds of questions. But an extraordinary amount of what the city spent its time doing in building the water systems was dealing with the legal fallout of acquiring land in order to build a system. So this worked somewhat differently at different points in time, but effectively the city had the right to what was often referred to in le legally as con condemning land. So the city could condemn an individual's property in order to acquire that property to build the water system, the logic being that the water system was a public good and therefore what we would today call eminent domain was appropriate, which is to say that the government can take private land for a public purpose. Public purpose, an idea we take for granted today. But major public works projects were extremely rare at the time. Putting aside the Erie Canal, which was completed by the state a few years before in 1825. The thing is, New York City originally tried to access water through a private company started by Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, the man who shot Alexander Hamilton. The very same. So the story of Aaron Burr and the Manhattan Company that is interesting on a couple of levels. One interesting little tidbit is that the Manhattan Company eventually becomes Chase Manhattan. The bank, uh, and this was a situation where you had the municipal authorities in New York City essentially contracting with a private company, giving them various financial benefits in exchange for agreeing to construct a water system for New York City. Um, the company essentially didn't really follow through on its obligation to build much of the water system that was supposed to construct reservoirs within the city. It didn't maintain what it built. It built relatively little compared to the needs of the population, and it became somewhat of an object lesson in New York City regarding the dangers of effectively privatizing the water system, of not having the government directly construct and manage the system. So you have Aaron Burr, who's obviously well known for his losing his life and his participation in famous duel with Hamilton, who is a probably the most famous figure in the Manhattan Company and who is uh, somewhat besmirched by his association with the company, which is seen as failing New Yorkers and delivering a water supply to the city. This is a story that just keeps getting better. So Aaron Burr's mess of an attempt at a privatized water system leads New York City to finally decide to do the project itself, and Croton was the best place for it. This had to have been a mammoth project. It really was. I asked a local Croton expert just how the city financed it. In fact, we were standing right in front of the new Croton Dam when we talked. My name is Tom Tarnowski. I'm a uh, member of Friends of the Old Croton Aqueduct. It's an advocacy group. We work with New York State Parks uh, to preserve and protect the Old Croton Aqueduct as it exists in Westchester County, which is now a state park 
uh, a linear state park, 26 miles long. Uh, New York City did issue bonds for the Old Croton Aqueduct and uh, sold uh, what they thought would be uh, enough to pay for it, which they early on estimated anywhere from between five and nine million dollars. It ended up costing about 11, uh, including uh, about $900,000 for the High Bridge, which is a Roman arched aqueduct bridge crossing the Harlem River in Upper Manhattan from the Bronx. And it's how the water gets from the mainland to Manhattan Island itself. But yes, there was bonds, and um, there were all kinds of predictions that the city would be bankrupt after the fact, and with people 10 generations down the road would still be paying for it. It didn't work out that way because the city grew so quickly and the economy grew so quickly that the bonds were paid off within you know, the specified amount of time that they had actually predicted. Within 20 years, the aqueduct had paid for itself. Tom Tarnowski made a very important point during our conversation. Connecting the two huge public works projects of the era, meaning the Erie Canal and the construction of the Croton water system. Without them, no Empire State. The Erie Canal and the Croton Aqueduct were two projects that made New York the Empire State and, and New York the capital of that state. Well, New York City got a lot of the benefit they of it got as well. A lot of the benefit from it, so. it became the Empire City because of all the goods moving from right. the Great Lakes as far as Ohio or even farther across the canal down the Hudson which made New York City the, the commercial empire, banking empire that it was. Yeah, and you know, as I said, they were the highways of the time. Sure. The Hudson River and, and New York Harbor were just, you know, you could probably leap from the deck of one boat to another. They were, it was so busy. You know, it's interesting how today we've come to assume projects like these, big projects, the roads, bridges, all that stuff, will be done by the government for the public good. But it wasn't always like that. Anyway, you spoke with Tom in front of the new Croton Dam. What happened to the old one? That's a good question. The old Croton Dam was the first dam in the system and was completed in 1842. But it was eventually replaced as New York City continued to grow and the need for more fresh water grew with it. Village of Croton on Hudson historian Mark Cheshire knows all about what happened to the old dam. It still exists. Uh, it was flooded when uh, the new Croton Dam was, uh, was built. And it's on a, uh, a list that actually exists, a very short list, of uh, the National Register of Historic Places Underwater. And uh, it has been seen uh, a few times uh, since the new Croton Dam was completed. There were some severe droughts at various times, and uh, there are photographs that still show it when it emerges when the water, uh, when the water is low. When the old Croton Dam uh, was built, it was really the only source uh, of the water, and it came from uh, the old Croton Dam. And it was quite an engineering uh, project at the time. Uh, it was completely gravity-fed, uh, uh, given the elevation of where the old Croton Dam is versus uh, the island of uh, Manhattan. Uh, so there was no pumping involved. Uh, the dam, uh, you know, was built. The aqueduct uh, would had an intake, and water would flow uh, into the aqueduct, which was carefully constructed to be going down gently downhill. And uh, there were several places where they would have what they called inverted siphons uh, to get underneath, uh, uh, you know, areas uh, where they had to cross a valley. Uh, and so it was a gravity-fed system uh, that eventually uh, wound its way to uh, a reservoir that was built uh, in what is now the Great Lawn in, in Central Park. Mm -hmm. And that was what was called the uh, receiving reservoir. 
And then there was the distributing reservoir, which was built where the New York Public Library and Bryant Park are today. Uh, in fact, if you go to the New York Public Library, uh, there's a place on one of the staircases where they have left part of the walls of uh, the reservoir exposed, and you can see part of the walls of uh, the distributing reservoir. Because remember, at that time, most of the city of New York was south of 42nd Street. Mm -hmm. And so that was the distributing reservoir. And then they built mains, water mains that went down. Uh, and, and the distributing reservoir had enough elevation relative to uh, the lower end of Manhattan uh, that water could, you know, could rise to buildings, which, of course, were not skyscrapers uh, then. And so that was uh, the original system. And then as they started to need more and more water and they started to build other uh, dams further up the Croton River, you know, they constructed uh, the, the water tunnel um, so that they could eventually stop using uh, the old Croton aqueduct. Uh, and the water tunnel was dug uh, deep underground. The day the fresh water flowed from Croton to New York City must have been an amazing moment for New Yorkers. Yeah, so July 4th, 1842 is when the water first arrives in the city. And the city celebrated it. There were days of parades and concerts, and there were fountains that were built really to show off the gravity-fed nature of the system, show how high it could shoot the water into the sky. And, you know, I think something that's important is those celebrations highlight the appreciation that people had for infrastructure and for utilities and the ability of their government to deliver critical needs to them. Back in the days when people still celebrated new public works. Well, I guess it was a cause for celebration since now New York City could actually drink its water. Absolutely. But by the late 1800s, New York City needed more water. So that was when they began planning the new Croton Dam, which was completed in 1905. That's the one I drove by. It is huge, massive. Right. And did you know that the new Croton Dam was hand-hewn? In fact, it's the third largest completely hand-hewn structure in the world, behind the Great Pyramid of Giza and the Great Wall of China. I did know that. In fact, I read it in Smithsonian Magazine. <laughs> so did I. Hand-hewn. That's, that's incredible. So basically, they built the thing by hand? Well, they used equipment to get the dam's blocks in place. Tom Tarnowski explains. Uh, just the fact that it wasn't all poured concrete, that he, every boulder and every stone in the dam had to be placed there individually. Uh, so that is really something that goes back to Roman times. It's a 2,000-year-old construction technique, just brought up to date by the massiveness of the dam and by a better understanding of the, of the engineering principles required. Almost everything built at the time, even in the early 1900s, was probably overbuilt by a factor of four or five uh, be because they understood the general physics of it, that the, a certain amount of mass would be required to hold back the water behind it at a depth of 100 feet right here in back of it. But they didn't have it tuned the way they do today to down to like the last square cubic foot or cubic yard of water and weight and force. They didn't have anything but a slide rule to work with back then, and maybe not even that. But they could do the math, and they were good at it. It took an army of workers to build this thing. I mean, it is 100 feet high and over 200 feet wide, spanning 1,100 feet. And that 100-foot height is only half of its actual height. It's another 100 feet underground. I did not know that. That's why I'm here, Don. 
Anyway, here's Mark Cheshire quoting from a New York Times article written as the dam was being built. Upon the dam's stonework, there are some 40 large derricks and their accompanying engines. The engines handle the immense blocks of stone being put in place by hundreds of workmen. From the great cables, stone, cement, and sand are constantly being lowered down into the foundation's large cavity. The structure is surrounded with narrow-gauge railroad tracks, upon which run platform cars drawn by small steam locomotives that haul the stone in from quarries a few miles from the dam. Men, looking as small as ants on an anthill, and quite busy, may be seen. A little engine comes puffing into sight, drawing platform cars, upon which are great blocks of stone. The train stops. From one of the great derrick cables above, a chain descends, reaches one of the cars, and is fastened to an immense block of stone. Three cableways stretched across the valley with small cars carrying rubble, boulders, and earthen fill from one side to the other. Later, the same system is utilized to deliver masonry and supplies to the work site. The cableways are also put into action loaded with baskets and buckets that transport materials on wheel rails using a pulley. In a minute, our stone block is being raised toward the cable. At the proper time, it stops in its upward movement and begins to travel across the wide ravine suspended from the cable. Again, it stops and is quickly lowered down upon the stonework to become part and parcel of the great structure, there to remain for all time. In order to bring stone to the work site from nearby quarries, the city leased land on which is constructed a narrow-gauge railroad running seven miles moving material in flat cars called dinghies, which have no sides or top. Daily, a dozen steam locomotives with up to a hundred cars make their way back and forth from the quarries. Large amounts of building materials are moved up and down the Hudson River by steamboat or rail. What a production. I mean, how many people were working on this dam at the time? Roughly 850. Wow. So you can imagine what Croton was like when this was going on. The workforce uh, was largely Italian, both skilled stonemasons who were recruited in Italy and came over uh, specifically to come to America to work on the project. Some of them were skilled stonemasons, some were simply come, came over as workers. Uh, there were also uh, a lot of Irish. In fact, mo it was mostly Irish labor that built the old Croton Dam. Mm. Uh, but Irish worked there, African-Americans, and generally speaking, the, uh, the skilled masons were the highest paid uh, workers, and the unskilled Italians are said to have been the lowest uh, paid uh, workers. Uh, they lived uh, in temporary quarters uh, in the area of, uh, you know, all around uh, the dam. Uh, there were uh, boarding houses that the uh, construction people built below uh, the work site. Um, there was a place up uh, uh, on one of the hills uh, where some of the stonemasons uh, leased uh, land and built uh, little houses uh, that they lived in. They, they were said to have gardens there. Uh, and some of them, uh, after they came settled here, brought over their wives and their families uh, because they had enough money, the, the stonemasons. Uh, there was also a uh, infamous place called the Bowery that was uh, uh, south of the dam near one of the bridges across the, the lower Croton. Uh, and uh, the Bowery was a place uh, with a lot of boarding houses, saloons, uh, houses of ill repute. For Tom Tarnowski, 
the story of the workers who built the Croton dams is one of the most interesting aspects of this history. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the, of the entire construction of New York City's water system are the uh, kind of sociological aspects of it. The original Croton Aqueduct in the 1830s and 40s was built mostly by Irish immigrants. By the time this dam was built, it was mostly Italian immigrants doing the same kind of masonry work. And so the, you know, the history of the country and microcosm appears in the history of the water system of the city, which is a wonderful thing to think of. Uh, not only the um, sociological and, and uh, uh, immigration aspects of it, but science and technology, the growth of business and, um, and engineering. And as the changes um, you know, in, in those things developed, it, the same thing showed up in, in the body of all the uh, water infrastructure for the city, including this dam. And, and there was a village where the parking lot is at the far end of the park. There was a small village of, uh, of resident Italian laborers, some of whom brought their families over, uh, and they all lived there during the construction of the dam. I love the idea that the building of this water system was somehow representative of the era and a microcosm of the country at the time. That really puts it into perspective. So 1905, new Croton Dam is completed. Now New York City is fine, right? Wrong. One of the ironies of these projects is that accessing more fresh water helps lead to more growth for New York City, which then leads to the need for more water. It becomes an endless cycle. Literally, almost from the minute the new Croton Dam is completed, city leaders knew that they needed more water. The same year the new Croton Dam is finished, the state legislature creates the New York City Board of Water Supply and grants New York City the right to begin acquiring land damming rivers, and creating reservoirs in the Catskill Mountains. In 1915, the Ashokan Reservoir is completed, flooding out thousands of acres of private land in Ulster County. Today, the vast majority of New York City's water comes from the Catskills and the Delaware River Basin. Really? So what about the Croton? Is that just obsolete now? Not according to Adam Bosch of New York City's Department of Environmental Protection. I always like to tell people the Croton system is like the little system that could. There, when the city is in its most dire needs, the Croton system is the system that steps up to help. So whenever we are in a drought, it's always the Croton system that helps get the city get through the drought because the Croton system has the two pumping stations that allow us to get more water out of it. The Croton system gets turned on at a higher flow. Whenever we, if we need to fix the biggest tunnel in the world, we're going to rely on the Croton system more. Of course, we're going to rely on the Catskill system more, but really we're going to rely more and more on the Croton system. So, you know, uh, a lot of folks think, and I, I, I encounter this from time to time when I give talks in the city, ah, the city really doesn't use the Croton system. Or from time to time, I've heard people say, oh, the city doesn't really need the Croton system. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Croton system today really steps up and helps the city during the most dire and most important times when either we're facing a natural water shortage or infrastructure outages for planned maintenance. It's really, really still plays a crucial role in making sure that New Yorkers have a reliable, potable, safe, clean, del delicious supply of water today. So that was the first step, right? I mean, it's fair to say that without the success of the Croton system, there would be no modern New York City. That's at least partially accurate. You can't have a city of millions of people without fresh water. Okay, but more importantly, why does New York City water make the best-tasting pizza and bagels in the world? <laughs> I asked Adam Bosch that same question. Oh, this is a source of great debate, yeah, my friend. Is. So so I'll, I do not pretend to be a chemist 
I do not pretend to be a person of great culinary science, but I will tell you what I hear. Um, and this goes back to the history of the Croton system as well. The only thing that was not great about the Croton system when it got turned on in the 1800s is that water from the Croton system is what we would call moderately hard. So it has a decent amount of calcium in it. And as the city was becoming industrialized, this calcium was a little bit problematic because it was causing the buildup of scale on industrial machines and especially steamships. And the getting that scale off of steamships and industrial equipment was labor intensive and it was pretty costly. So one of the criteria that New York City had as it looked for its next source of water was that the water had to be soft. It had to be soft water that was generally free of calcium. They come up into the Catskills and they find some of the softest water in the world. Essentially, in the Catskills, the geology is such that there's almost no limestone, which is usually the main source of calcium that ends up naturally in water. Um, when they turn this water on, the problem of scale goes away. And many people say that it is the unique softness of the water that comes from the Catskills that is the cause of the great dough products in New York City, whether that's bagels or pizza crust. Uh, I think other people have said alkalinity is another factor. Um, so you'll see, if you look carefully, there are news articles throughout the country where New Yorkers have gone elsewhere, where they try to replicate the chemical makeup of New York City's water to replicate the dough products. So down in Florida, we actually have some people who ship New York City's water to other states to replicate it. But I know for sure in Florida and in a suburb of Los Angeles, they have gone through to, to great cost and great trouble to try to replicate the chemical makeup of New York City's water to create the same pizza and, and dough products. You know, I started out as a journalist in Sullivan County when I started my career, and I can only imagine all the snowbirds, all my friends in Sullivan County who go to Florida for the winter saying, uh, you know, we'd really like to have the great New York City uh, bagels and pizza and other things that we're used to. And uh, there are plenty of people out there trying to replicate it in a number of interesting scientific ways. I can imagine scientists the world over toiling in their labs to recreate this natural wonder. And all they have to do is come to New York. We would like to thank this episode's guests, Professor David Saul, Village of Croton-on-Hudson historian Mark Cheshire, Tom Tarnowski from the Friends of the Old Croton Aqueduct, and Adam Bosch from the New York City Department of Environmental Protection. We would also like to thank our intern from the University at Albany Public History Program, Dana Kurdeski. Cheers, Don. Cheers. Ooh. <sighs> Excelsior. Thanks for joining us on the New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York in unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Don Wildman. Stay tuned to WAMCpodcasts.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes. A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media. Support for the project comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. It is also sponsored by a Humanities New York Action Grant with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Until next time, Excelsior.